at Element, we do these things called connect parties where if you're new or newer, you can meet some of the leadership that's here. Uh, we typically just do those like once a quarter at a house and did a dessert thing. We're going to try something different this year. What we're going to do is we picked a date, uh, March 28th, and after every service, we're going to do like 15 minutes over in the middle school room. You'll, the elders will be there. Whoever's leading music that morning will be there. Uh, some different gospel community leaders will be there, and you can ask some questions and get to know who we are. Be like short. 15 minutes because a lot of times when we make these dessert things a lot of you guys have kids and like the last minute you know my kid just uh, ate my other kid's ear I don't know something and it's like sorry we can't come and this will make it kind of easy for you because child care is still there and you can come in and pop in and meet some people and then about once every six months we're going to invite everybody who came to that to a large get together where we'll you know do desserts and things like that we're always trying to get Joyce Snyder to let us do it at her house so we can use her big old pizza oven and it's always better when Phil makes the pizzas because we can always see if he's going to burn his eyebrows off again. <laughs> Such joy. Such joy. So next, we're doing this next one on March 28th. You can write that down. Whatever service you come to, it'll just be at the end of that service for about 15 minutes. Uh, welcome to Element if you are new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On this side, you'll get, a, get this big idea of what we're talking about this morning and some questions that reflect on what we talk about. On this side, uh, you'll get the verses we're covering and a couple announcements. So you have a smartphone, though. You can download an app. It's called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. And you click on More and then Events and that. And we should come up by GPS in your smartphone. Smartphone, and you will get those sermon notes and questions and announcements and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Acts chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. And it says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us to learn to be a people who gather together and rejoice in what you are doing, whether it's hardships or whether it's great joys, that we would learn how to gather and speak of those things with one another with an eye that reminds us of what the gospel really is and how it works out in our lives. Teach us to be a people who understand your grace and your hope and your redemption given to us and how we rejoice together. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series, it's called Acts Part 2. Acts Part 2 is covering the second two-thirds of the book of Acts. That is chapter 13 through the end of the book. About four and a half years ago, we did Acts Part 1, because we're not fast. Uh, Acts Part 1, which was chapter 1 through 12. Now, um, obviously, chapters 1 through 12 focus on Jesus, but also on this guy named Peter. When you get to chapters 13 through the end of the book, it still focuses on Jesus, but it mainly looks at this also this guy named Paul. Paul is a guy who used to go around killing Christians before he became one of them. And I think eventually, I will just start calling the whole series just Acts instead of Acts Part 2, but for now it kind of works out well. Uh, Paul, after he believes in Jesus, he gets trained and paired with a guy named Barnabas, and they get sent out by God's Spirit, setting them aside on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, Here's a map of what that journey looked like with all those little arrows. 
Now, this journey took them about two years. It's taken us eight weeks, which feels like two years to some of you, but I understand. It's been about eight weeks. And today what I'm going to do is pull the last couple weeks together with this week. And we're going to talk about these sufferings and persecution that Paul and Barnabas went through and how, with a focus on the gospel, we can understand what God is going to lead those things to in our own lives today as well. Because Paul, no matter where he went and he went through, he rejoiced in what God was doing, even if that meant people were throwing rocks at his face. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. On this journey to try and spread the good news about who Jesus is, what he is doing in the world, they, get in, they run into lots of trouble. They start in this place called Antioch in Syria over there on the bottom right. And they start traveling around places like Pamphylia and Perga. They end up in this place called, uh, called Antioch, but it's in another place called Poseidia. And in this place, they, they speak about the goodness of the gospel to people who are Jewish in that context. And many of them start to believe. And as soon as they start to believe, other religious people get very nervous about this. They're going to take our, our, our synagogue away. What are these people going to do? And they round up everybody, get them up in arms, and they run Paul and Barnabas out of town. Paul and Barnabas will then move to a city called Iconium. In Iconium, the same thing kind of happens, and they run Paul and Barnabas out of town for being heretics. They end up going to a place called Lystra. And in Lystra, they will heal this guy who was born crippled. And this guy gets to jump up, and he's running around again, and all the people in that place want to worship Paul and Barnabas because of that miracle. And I asked you last week, if you had to decide what is a better circumstance to share the gospel in, someone wanting to kill you or someone wanting to worship you, which one would you pick? Neither. Okay, neither. Neither one of those are good if you're trying to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people in Lystra who start to try and worship Paul and Barnabas, they stop the worship, but then the other people from the other Antioch and Iconium show up, they stir up the crowd, and the crowd then decides, well, we're not going to worship them, we're going to kill them. And they throw rocks at Paul, at his face and his body, until they think he's dead, they drag him outside of the city. But Paul obviously didn't die. we got more chapters in Acts than that. So Paul is bloody, he gets back up, goes back into town, grabs his stuff, Acts chapter 4, verse 20, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so it worked out better there, we don't get that story, we get all the trials, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They go back the way they had come to all of those cities, and they strengthen people in those cities, they set up elders in those cities for those churches, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean salvation by works. It means that as you share the gospel and you live in grace out in the world, many times it will not go well for you. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now we're going to finish out the rest of chapter 14. uh, Verse 24, Then they passed through Poseidia and came to Pamphylia because they'd ordered a lot of pamphlets for their journey and decided to pick them up on the way back. (laughs) Kidding, that's a joke. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, that is the one in Syria, the big Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, uh, where they had been committed, committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And they had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples." 
So what you see is even in those beatings and those being run out of all those, all those towns, they rejoice with other disciples and the people in the church together over what God is doing. And I told you last week, I think most of us would have been a people who gave up in the midst of this. We would say, oh, I think God sent me here. And then people run you out of every town and people try and kill you. Like, yeah, maybe God doesn't really want me here. Paul understood all that was happening in light of taking the gospel forward and trusting God every step of the way. Uh, there is this great quote uh, by Theodore Roosevelt. He gave it in 1910. And other people throughout ages have quoted this from Winston Churchill to Nelson Mandela. I, I even think not Nixon quoted in his resignation speech, but anyway, this is, this is what he says. Um, it says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. I, I call that Twitter, right? The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. It's a great quote. And this is Paul. Paul wasn't cold or timid. And Paul wasn't looking for victory or defeat. He was looking to spread the good news of God's rescue of everyone. That first missionary journey of Paul never really leaves his mind. Actually, in the book of 2 Timothy, this is written probably 67 AD, so it's like 20 years after Paul goes through that first missionary journey. And he writes to Timothy, this young pastor who actually came out of Lystra. And this is what he says. You, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. So he still remember these 20 years later, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's probably Timothy, and the church is getting ready to go through some really hard things. And Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Really? All? Is that how it works? Kind of seems that way. I, I talked to you about how Paul healed that guy in Acts 14, and it references how Peter heals the guy in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter heals the guy, they start to worship God, not, not Peter, and it's pretty cool. But Peter then starts to give a sermon. And the sermon isn't really about power or peace. They're summed up in the sermon. But what he will talk about is absolute truth that is found in the person of Jesus, fully there. And when he does that, the religious people start to persecute Peter for the message that he gave. This is what happens when Paul preaches the gospel. But the truth is, is that no, almost nobody wants to surrender to what the gospel really is, what it really means in our lives. And so this morning what I want to do to round out these last three weeks about suffering and things we go through in our lives is to talk again about what the gospel is. You hear this a million times in element, you're going to hear it a million more. But we've got to get this deep down in who we are. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. That's the gospel. But what does it mean? And that's the good news. Well, to understand what it means, we always have to understand what the bad news is. And the bad news is, is that he died because of us. 
Now, this is how this works. In Genesis, God creates everything good, including man. And he lays out in front of man what is good. The Hebrew word for good, there's this word called tov or tav. And it refers to everything good. All beauty, all grace, all goodness, all hope. God is the one who determines what is good and beneficial. And God will impart that knowledge to the man that he creates. God fashions humans with his hands. He makes them in his image. He breathes his very breath into them to make them alive. And then he will instruct them on what is good and right. And he will place them in this garden to care for it and tend it. God also instructs the man about what life is truly about. And life is about relationship and hope and being in connection with our creator, that God is the center of all things. God will then tell the consequence to man of what this thing called sin is. Sin is breaking relationship with God. And when you break relationship with God, who is our source of life, we will then die. That's simple as this. You sin, you die. Today we make that so much more complicated than it is. To make this as simple as possible, death is separation. It is separation from who God is. Death is not just the stopping of our hearts and the blood in your veins turning from red to blue, though it's still red, you just don't know it. Death is separation from real life. God is our source of life. And he tells us, in the day you sin, you will be separated from what real life is. And so death is that separation. It's separation from all that is also good. If you're going through element U, we've kind of talked about this a couple times. In Genesis, what God will do is he will separate for the man what is light and what is darkness, what is truth and what is lies, what is life and what is death. And the explanation constitute that life and death includes this idea to man that he is free to live in the garden in any way that pleases God. And what that means is, like today we're like, oh, what's God's will for my life? I've got to find that little itty-bitty dot and figure it out No, God's will for your life, love, serve, glorify. Go out and enjoy the life that God has placed in your hands. What God says is, just don't dishonor me. Stay in relationship with me. And the way God does that for the man is he said, don't eat from this particular tree that's in the garden. That, and so what mankind eventually does, we all know this, is he goes and he eats from that. He separates himself from who God is. And when he does that, when man decides to sin in the garden, what he does is he dies. He does what he feels right to himself, like we all do today. We always run around thinking, well, if God says this and I want to do that, I'm going to do what I think feels right. And then we destroy our lives by running after that thing that we thought felt so good. In Genesis 3, you see that as soon as the man and the woman sin, they tragically died. It will lead to eventual physical death, but they became separated from God instantly and from one another. And the scriptures will start to use words like shame and, and expose to illustrate what happened. Like the sin made them lose their sense of innocence and connection, not just with each other, but with God himself. And they no longer know what beauty of goodness actually is, the good that allowed them to face one another and God himself and not have any shame. The scriptures will even say the man and the woman were both, no, were both naked and they knew no shame. That's more than just about being naked. It's about being open and known by one another and not having to hide anything whatsoever to know the beauty of innocence, and they lost that. They also lost that true life that came from being in connection with God himself and the world around them and each other. And this is where you get, I think, one of the most saddest verses in the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Anybody have a dog? Anybody? We don't ask about cats, just dogs. Okay. Okay, you get a dog. You walk out of the house 30 seconds, and you walk back, and the dog's all... You are my source of life. I love you. You are home. You're amazing. <gasps> That's a dog. Okay? Cats don't care. Cats are instant. Um, so what happens is God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they're 
totally, totally, God's here. Woo, this is great. Oh, it's so wonderful. After they sin, what happens? And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hide from God, from their source of life. Now, we say that Adam is the head of the human race. Because he died, we are all born into this deep-rooted propensity to sin, to seek our own good. But what Genesis illustrates is that man cannot know the good apart from God showing us what it is. God alone gets to make those definitions. And to this day, sin runs rampant in our lives and causes us to be separated from other people, from the creation around us, and from our Creator. And eventually, we're separated from our own flesh. So how can God restore us to the place of understanding and knowing His definition of good and relationship with who He is? Well, the rest of Genesis chapter 3, you see God comes walking into the garden in that cool of the day, into this place of rebellion, into this place of death, and God calls out to the man, where are you? And this is not that God didn't know where the man was, like, oh, I can't see a naked person standing behind a tree trying to cover their baby-making parts. That's not what's happening there. God is trying to get the man to wake up. He's saying, where, yeah, yeah, where am I? What have I done? What's going on here? The point is that God came looking for the man. It's not about us going on a vision quest to figure out who God is. God comes looking for us because we can never find him on our own. God is on a rescue mission to redeem his people from death. So God makes these promises in his holiness that he would then provide a sacrifice to remove man's sin and restore relationship. And what you see at that moment is God then makes this first sacrifice. He slaughters an animal to clothe Adam and Eve's shame. And look out through all the rest of the Old Testament. The words nakedness and shame and exposing are all these euphemisms for running away from God and from sin. And sometimes we overlook that verse and gloss over it a bit, but it's devastating. Blood is spilled at the cost of man's sin. Why blood? Well, blood is related to life. That's how devastating sin is. And the fact that God made that sacrifice himself in that place shows how important and necessary it is that sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Sometimes people say, oh, God can't be in the presence of sin. That's not what it is. It's that sin cannot be in the presence of God. And if we want to be in a relationship with him, we have to have our sin removed. So how do we do that? Well, through the Old Testament, and then there's this whole sacrificial system that is set up. And when these, when these blood of these bulls and these goats and these rams, what it does is it only covers people's sin. But it all is pointing to when Jesus comes and he removes our sin, all that separates us from God and also one another. I love the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will sum up almost the entire Old Testament in one verse. It's like the Cliff Notes version. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so what God does is he provides himself in Jesus at the appointed time to be the one that dies for us in our place as our substitution. That is the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection is God's good news for us. See, God just can't wink and nod at sin and say, oh, it's it's no big deal. Kind of like when your kids go crazy, you're like, yeah, whatever, it's okay. God is holy, and God is just and right and true. And if you brush his sin off, God would cease to be God. God defines what the consequence of sin is in our lives. And this is why blood, which is related to life, is required for the sin we commit. The problem is we can never pay for our sin on our own because our life, our blood, all that we are is tainted because of our sin. And what is taught through the scripture is clear. Either we die forever separated from God or we trust God's provision to rescue and bring us back 
to Him, what God has done, Jesus who dies for us. It is our death for His life. It is our sin for His righteousness. And this is what the Reformers always called the great exchange. The idea of regaining life is rooted in the idea of sacrifice, and specifically Jesus' sacrifice for us. Why did Jesus have to die? Because our lives are just rooted in sin, and the cost of sin is death. But Jesus dies because He is that good. That is why. Now, Paul is trying to explain this to people in their particular context so they would begin to understand it. And what Paul would say is, don't let this get you down when you understand it. This should make you be someone who lives in humbleness and, and great joy of who God is because God has deemed to rescue us. That's his, that's his good news. We don't live in despair over what it cost him. We live new lives of joy because he first loved us. And he has given himself to us, and that's a reason for great joy. We no longer need to be a separated, dead people. We get to be a redeemed and a restored people. We get to be restored to God himself. We get to be restored to who God made us to be. That's what the gospel does. Now, this is what they were preaching in all these various cultural contexts. The truth of God's rescue of us. And every time you see persecutions break out in this early church against the gospel, it is shown in acts mainly coming from religious people. If you look through the Old Testament scriptures, what you see is that when God sends his prophets, God, 99% of the time, sends his prophets to his own people. Wake up. Return to who God is. Follow what he's saying to you. God has loved you. He sought you. He wants to restore you. And what do they do? Kill God's prophets over and over. And it seems the same thing is now still happening. Because many times people in this time and era, even today, a lot of Jewish people think the Messiah is an ideal and not a real person. And these religious people will start to follow Paul wherever he goes to stop him from preaching this radical grace. They want to be, no, no, it's about our works. It's about figuring this out. It's about you trying to figure out your life and doing it the right way. And they try and get rid of the grace. Now, this persecution, you know, breaks out, like I said. Tim Keller, like in Paul's and the early church's words about the gospel and their persecution, like an acorn. Now, I, haven't, I have this oak tree in my backyard, so here's a picture of an acorn that falls off of it. I'm always spraying them with the Roundup, but doesn't, they're hardy. doesn't want to kill these things at all. So th- this is an acorn that comes off my tree in the backyard, and if you let it go, eventually it would look like this. These are some oak trees in my backyard, and they're gigantic. And can you imagine all, all that potential and power of the gigantic oak tree is all squished up in the little acorn. And if you, if you let them grow like that, they'll keep dropping acorns. And if there are no people around, it would probably cover an entire continent with these trees. It's simply amazing what would happen. All that potential is there, but it doesn't happen unless it falls to the ground and dies first. Jesus says this in John 12, 24, speaking of wheat. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself and also us as a people. Every human being made in the image of God. The potential in us is infinitely more than what's in a little acorn. God has given us the potential for greatness and for wisdom and compassion and for composure and for beauty and character. But many times it doesn't become released, according to Jesus and Paul, except many times through suffering and difficulty and trial. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
As you turn there, I'm going to read you uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul says this in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Of people running us out of town and throwing rocks at my face. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces character. Or suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want you to stay there because we're going to jump around in this a little bit, is that chapter 4, 10 through 12, I read this to you last week. He says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul, in saying this, knows that his sufferings and his setbacks and all the things that he is experiencing and going through is growing him to trust Christ more in his life and is teaching him then how to spread the gospel and be equipped in more and more ways. It's, it's why, for good or bad, they come together after this missionary journey and they join together with other believers and they rejoice from everything that took place because the gospel, that understanding of God's rescue of us, brought hope to everything. Paul was a guy in his life, and he has this issue called a thorn in his flesh. He would pray that God would take it away, but God never did. There are probably thousands of doctoral PhD dissertations on what people think the thorn in the flesh is. It doesn't matter. What matters is God left it there for a purpose and for a reason. You look at Jesus. Jesus is getting ready to be crucified. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is sweating these these sweat drops are like drops of blood and he's praying to the father about what's going to take place all this anxiety his side is going to have a spear shift there's going to be nailed to a cross one writer says it like this it's the very meaning of history that redemption comes out of injustice and pain and misery it's the very meaning of history that life comes out of death it's the very meaning of history that out of devastation comes redemption And what God says to Jesus is what God says to Paul. is what he says to every single one of us. And he says, I will walk through this with you. I will love you. But understand that my strength is made perfect in weakness. And he walks through these things with us. 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says this, The hardships we suffered in Asia were very great, beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired of life. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're still there, verse 8, he will then say, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And that is not a contradiction. Paul says, when you are actually going through these sufferings, you feel like you're being crushed. You feel like you're in despair. But he will go on to say that on the backside of it, I look back and I see that God was sustaining me with hope that couldn't be extinguished because I understood the gospel and what he had done to rescue and restore and love me. For us, that means you can be going through all kinds of things in your life. You can feel like you're alone, like you've been abandoned, like you have no hope, like everybody has completely given up on you. And when you understand the gospel, one day you'll be able to look back and you will see all the results of what the gospel was doing in your life that not only brought God glory, but in the end will bring you ultimate joy. That is the pattern of Paul's setbacks and ours as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're still there, verse 16, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He says, For this light, momentary affliction. 
light momentary affliction. They threw rocks at his head and his body till they thought he was dead and drug him outside. Light. We have a different definition. Okay, I do apologize. But light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In Paul's day, they had these people, they were called Stoics. And Stoics said, well, just accept suffering and push through it. These other guys, they were called Epicureans, and they said, avoid suffering. You run from it at all costs. Uh, then you had these aesthetics, or we'd call them like masochists today, and they would say, embrace suffering for its own sake. Uh, they will even pay people to hurt them, which is just really weird to me. But we need to see that the gospel, when we understand it, it doesn't merely accept suffering. But it doesn't avoid it, and it doesn't run from it. It does not necessarily embrace it. What the gospel does is it engulfs suffering. It engulfs it. And it all has to do with the nature of the Christian hope. Because the Christian hope is not you get to go to heaven one day. The nature of the Christian hope is restoration of all that was lost when we first ran away from God himself. Our hope in the gospel, it brings this restoration to the world and the life that we were actually created for. And that should change everything in regard to what we go through and our suffering. Depends on where our focus is. When Tim Keller was talking about the acorn, he also started talking about nightmares. And I love this. Uh, You ever have a nightmare, anybody? Nightmares? Okay, if you didn't, you might get one after this message. Okay. Uh, I have some crazy dreams. It is usually because I'm eating something, and I'm like, man, I shouldn't eat that before I go to bed. And then I eat it anyway. And then I have nightmares, and I'm like, yep, it's because I ate that thing. But I have these nightmares. Uh, some of them will be like, um, element blows up. That's happened. Uh, my wife left me. My dog died. It sounds like a country song. I know. Um, but <laughs> someone actually said that at the first service. It sounds like a country song. But, but, you know, and so I have all these terrible things, but then I wake, wake up, and my wife is sleeping next to me, and my dog's still there, and I can tell because she smells really bad. Or I get to Element, and Element's still there, despite all my weirdness, you know, Element's still here, and it brings us deep joy. And, and the joy of finding those things wasn't a joy in spite of the nightmare. It was actually a joy that was enhanced by that nightmare. And maybe that doesn't make sense to you, but that heart-pounding nightmare was overwhelmed and moved out of the place of anxiety because of the joy of having these certain things back. That nightmare led to a greater joy. So for Paul and his setbacks, maybe for us and our hardships and sufferings and the things that we go through, because of the promises made in the gospel, the worst thing that has ever happened to you is just a nightmare. And in the end, there is a joy that God will bring out of the midst of all of those things. That is our hope in the gospel. Tim Keller says this, that all this suffering will do nothing except infinitely and correspondingly increase your future joy and glory in a way that it wouldn't have been increased if you never suffered it. What we call this is the ultimate defeat of evil. Think about that and all that Paul went through and that suffering he endured. How does he keep going? Because his focus isn't on the thing he's going through. It isn't on the suffering. His focus is on the gospel of self and God's great rescue of him. His understanding is about God's great love. And everything that has been done to him is ultimately going to become a servant of his future joy. The Christian hope does not compensate us for suffering. It undoes it. Paul says, our light momentary affliction achieves an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There has never been in the history of the world an understanding more hopeful and more encouraging or more amazing than that. 
and I and I thought about ending my message right there, but I decided what I want to do is is in this with this quote. Um, there's this there's this old philosopher, novelist, poet. His name was Dostoevsky. And he died in 1881. He had a terrible childhood. His dad was really mean. And then later in life, he ends up trying to overthrow this evil government that, that was happening. And he ends up in front of a firing squad. And as they, and as they get ready to shoot him, they say, no, no, I'm not going to shoot you. They let him down, and they send him to Siberia to 10 years in a labor camp. He died like one year after he got out of this labor camp. And he believed in Jesus. And this is what he says in that camp. He says, I believe all suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. You can tell he's like a poet, right? That's pretty cool. He says this, in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass. It will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, all the blood that they've shed, that this thing will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify everything that's happened. And he is talking about the culmination of what the gospel brings. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, Our light momentary affliction achieves an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is a hope of what God is doing, even in the midst of our trials and our suffering. And that will fuel Paul's love and grace and passion to live out and speak of the gospel for the rest of the book of Acts. And I think a question for us becomes... Are we a people who have understood the gospel in such a way that it fuels our lives as well? That whatever we are going through in the moment, do we end up focusing on that thing? Or are we focusing on the good news of the gospel's redemption of who we are? This is one of the reasons every week at Element we go to that place of communion. It's a reminder. Jesus says, whenever you meet, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we need the reminder of Christ's rescue of us. That we surrender all that we are to all that he is. That he's the one who restores us. We don't restore ourselves. And so you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken and you break it. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It's a reminder of what he has done. It's meant to reset us and refocus us and lay down all the things that are consuming us so we would understand who he is and his redemption of us. It would have us go in the direction that he is calling us into, understanding he has first loved us. So we love him back. The beauty of the gospel is his redemption of us. And we get to be a people who live in the joy of that. Not the despair of all the junk that we've done or continue to fall into, but the redemptive hope of what God does. And that should fuel everything in our lives. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, maybe you are in a place today, and you have something, some suffering, some anxiety, I don't know, and it is just overwhelming your entire life. It's becoming the focus of all that you do and all that you are. They would love to begin to pray with you about that, to talk with you, to walk with you through some of those things. Because in the end, that anxiety, that suffering is not meant to be our focus. Your focus is meant to be the hope of God's rescue of stepping into those places. Not, not that the suffering isn't real. Not that anxiety doesn't, isn't real. Not that getting rocks thrown out your face and your body doesn't hurt. It's that God's rescue in the end is more real than any of these things. And he brings us back to himself with his grace. And we are a people 
who get to live in that great rescue of who we are when we focus upon the gospel. What God has done to rescue us. We surrender all that we are because he is good. And like I said, we begin to live lives of love because he has first loved us. That changes everything. Our God changes everything. And it's beautiful. There's offering boxes next to every door. And we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. There's food outside. Grab some sermon notes. Uh, take some of those questions. And maybe talk with one another. Because sometimes in the midst of suffering and anxiety, we need one another to help restore us and return us back to the understanding of God's great rescue of us. Because it's so easy in the midst of what we go through to forget that. To, to stop with our focus you know, on who God is and we start looking at our own selves. And we need one another to help us to remember what God has done. And so God places us in a family with each other. And I would encourage you to be those who come alongside one another and you would worship God together. And you would understand that restoration with one another. And as God has loved us, we love him back and love one another. And it all centers around his rescue and restoring of us, not just to himself, but to one another. So we, let's be a people who live the hope of God's good news and what we call the gospel. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and remind us of the great hope that you have brought to us. So often, we are a people who run from you, who seek our, our own devices because we think it's going to work out better when we do that. And every single time, it crashes and burns. Maybe not instantly, but over time, it eventually does because our focus has not been where it really needs to be. With the hope of your rescue of us. And so this morning, I ask that you would teach us to understand what the gospel really is and what the results of the gospel truly bring. That the gospel wouldn't just be a word that we throw out because we're Christians and we put it out, but it's a word that we understand because of what it means, this great good news of your rescuing strength and power. That we would begin to understand the thoughts that you have thought about us of how you've sought to restore us to yourself and that we would understand how faithful you are, how true you are. And that in understanding that, you would change our focus off of ourselves onto you and the great call you place in our lives. That we'd be a people who begin to live out in the world like Paul did on mission, serving and loving you in all that we do because you again have first loved us. And we thank you for that great love. Teach us to be those who live in it. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.